Hi, Ari. Hello, Dr. Webster. And hello, everybody listening to the podcast. Um, we're taking hello. a slightly we're taking a slightly different slant here. Um, we're moving away from embryology at the request of some of our students and some of our listeners, and we've been looking at how we can podcast about anatomy, which is yeah, our pet subject. Yeah, so we're introducing a new um, string of podcasts, really, that are anatomy-based. Yeah, no doubt we'll throw in a bit of embryology, we'll have you, but uh, um, the trick for us is, well, how do we talk about anatomy and what do we choose to talk about? Because we don't want to just recite Gray's anatomy. So what we've done is we've, we've come up with a format which uh, will um, get us to pick kind of important stuff, kind of relevant stuff for medical students. So this week, it's 10 things you should know about the GI tract, if you're a medical student. Yeah. Um, another reminder is that uh, Ree and I might sound a bit disconnected sometimes. And there's a good reason for that. Ree's in Biddeford, and I'm in Swansea, which is, what, probably 50, 60 miles in a straight line? Yeah, but... But, but about five hours via Bristol, because there's this Bristol channel in between the two of us. So sometimes it might be a bit of a delay or a bit of a crackle, because we're recording this over iChat. I will do my very best not to speak over you, but um, can't can't promise anything. Yeah, and I can't be asked to edit too much. <laughs> okay, so uh, how okay. you doing, Ree? Sorry, say that again. That all crackled up. How are things, Swansea? Tell me. Swansea, Swansea's good. Um, the students have just had their first batch of exam marks back after the the exams at the end of the first term, and everybody did pretty well. Well, oh, everybody did well. We had a few fails, but yeah, we did pretty well. Um, they seem to be enjoying um, the year, enjoying the anatomy, and there's a fair bit of social stuff going on. Okay, good. Um, now tell me, have there been any developments in the new course that's going on um, with the um, having the third fourth years stay in Swansea rather than migrate to Cardiff? So we're having the whole four-year program in uh, Swansea. Yeah, well, we're putting that together. We've got the GMC coming to visit us in... Uh, uh, middle of March to see how we're going on, have a chat with us all, have a look at our curriculum. Um, we're getting clinicians involved in directing their special areas there, you know, like uh, old gynae and uh, psychology and uh, geriatric medicine and child health and so on. They're looking at their specialties and they're pulling in some of the lectures from the previous course, creating new ones, tying in with clinical skills training and clinical experience and anatomy and that sort of thing. So it's coming together slowly and we're starting to get some deadlines laid down. Pretty pretty scary though, because we're starting in September. Well, mm-hmm. yeah, I know. That's not that long, eh? No. <laughs> <laughs> that was a very tiny voice. It's not very long. Um, but we'll get that. I mean, um, the current first years will then do their second year here and then move on to Cardiff. But the new students are coming from September. will start a brand new course in Swansea, which hopefully will be as successful as the current one, which has been really good. Excellent. That all sounds like very promising. I'm very pleased. Well, we get um, very good students here, um, and they, they they like what we do and they fit in very well with it. So. They just oh, had the. Are you crackling up your end? Yeah. Oh dear. Um, I was going to say, anyway. the, students, the students have. You know our Gambia link, the Swansea Gambia link? Yes, I had a look on the website. The students have. Uh, one thing you won't see on the website because I'm waiting for stuff back is the, Swan, the, the students organised an auction of promises like they did this year to pay for or to help pay for some Gambian students come over and visit us and see what we do here. And, um, 
see a bit of UK NHS life. Uh, eight of our students Did went over well? the end of our last year. It went really well. They raised over three grand in one evening. Wow. Three grand. Um, I was auctioning uh, a guaranteed entry to one of my tri-clubs races, cardifftry.net, um, which the club helped me with. And the club offered a free swim coaching session, or rather, I say free, a swim coaching session included in that and a how to complete your first triathlon session. I think they sold two entries, two places. They went like 160, 170 quid or something daft. Wow. Amazing. That is incredible. Yeah, it's all good. Have you been swimming so, much? Um, yes, I have been swimming. I am trying to still swim every week, but although um, I'm in drag. What's it like having a the, swim with a beach ball up your jumper? The, yeah, the baby bump is definitely um, getting there. I've got five weeks left. That's all. Five weeks to go. No, no. But I look absolutely hysterical in the swimming pool. And um, people expect me just to get in and kind of float, and I'm still doing length and stuff like that. And <laughs> people just aren't sure what to make of it, so it is quite funny. Uh, yeah, Kim was a bit similar. Yeah, I remember her swimming. I'm not going to even try a tumble turn. <laughs> <laughs> Can yeah. you imagine? How would you fold? <laughs> <laughs> I went to yoga the other day and um, I can't touch my toes anymore. Yay. <laughs> but everything's going well, is it? Yes, very well, thank you. Good. So um, have you and Rob adapted to the idea of being parents? Well, we did buy a pram the other day. Oh, well done. Yeah, um, although I haven't packed my hospital bag yet. No. Yeah, no, buying a pram, that's a pretty uh, landmark event. Don't forget the car seat as well. Can't get the baby home yeah, without the car seat. Yeah, pram and car seat, done. Loads of hand-me-downs from my sister who's just had a little baby. Um, so if it is a girl, it's going to be wearing boys' clothes, but never mind. <laughs> Excellent. Everything's very well, and uh, it's a real wriggler, so at least we know it's all right. Okay, so five weeks. We're at the end of January now, so early March is the due date. Early March yeah. 2009 for people who yeah. listen to this in the future. <laughs> well, we'll see what happens. Yeah. We'll have to start recording regularly. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. You might have to give me a bit of a break, a bit of a break for the rest of March. <laughs> but well, that, well, actually, I was going to suggest after this one we talk about the pelvis. There you go. You oh, see. yeah, that's a very good idea. I've you been will telling have everyone revised about that area. Before. Yeah. <laughs> Try not to think about it. Sorry, my uh, bringing up bringing up sensitive areas. <laughs> yeah, not my nightmares. Yeah. Be I've good. been revising the pelvic floor. Yeah. Yeah, although that's more important afterwards. Anyway, we won't go there yet. <laughs> okay. Anyway, right. Let's get back onto the gut. So what are we going to do then? Um, I've got a list of 10 things we're going to talk about, the 10 things that Rhi and I think you should know about the GI tract. Anybody listening to this may disagree with our list. They might want to add things, take things away, but it, it's a way of us focusing what we're going to talk about a little bit, isn't it? Yeah. Okay, so on the list I've got, number one, the parts of the GI tract. Number two, yeah. the anatomy of the mesentery, because the mesentery is something people often get caught up in. Uh, the histology of absorption. Yep. Just to look at some microscopic anatomy and link it to the gross. Yep. Blood is number four. So I think we're going to talk about the arterial supply and then um, how blood gets to the liver. Yeah. Yeah. Um, five is autonomic innovation. <laughs> that makes most <laughs> students shudder when they think about it. 
And number it's six, number six, I think it's one of yours, which I like. What's inside the peritoneum? I like that. Mm. Gives you an idea of where the peritoneum is, which structures are in it, which structures are outside it. So, uh, number seven, points of herniation. So where do your guts spill out? Number eight, how to spot the small or large bowel? Like, the surgeons always mention that. They they always they always commented on that. Number mm. nine, immunity. Yeah, I'll leave that to you. Number and ten, number how 10, to defecate. How Yay! to defecate. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, I thought that should come Everybody at the end. <laughs> okay. Um, so we'll take those one by one as we go through. So number one, parts of the tract. Then, Ree, what are the parts of the GI tract? So as we start at the oral cavity. Yeah, we're starting on a pretty easy one. So yeah, oral cavity. Um, Who go in you've here? Got, yes. Um, then we've got goes down to the pharynx. You've got your esophagus. You've got the stomach. You've got the small intestine, then you've got the large intestine, then you have the anus. Where it all comes out again. And that's essentially it. And uh, each part of the GI tract has a different function, doesn't it? Even the small intestine and large intestine have different roles. Sorry. I'm saying that the each part of the GI tract has different functions. Even the small intestine and the large intestine have different jobs, don't they? Yes, and um, that's an important thing for you all to know that the small intestine is involved in absorption of nutrients whereas that's the large where, intestine sorry that's where most of the absorption occurs isn't it like 90 percent of everything that gets absorbed occurs in the small intestine well it's very long and convoluted tube yes yeah that's its job that's what it's designed sorry designed that's what it has evolved to do Ooh, <laughs> it's designed yeah gotta be careful and these days the large intestine is primarily involved in um, reabsorption of water, but it does still reabsorb some nutrients that are left over in the in the food that's coming through. Yeah, so very but important. Primarily well. water. Yes, and it compacts your feces by taking the water out. Yeah. Um, oral cavity, like I said, food goes in here. Pharynx and esophagus is a part of the stomach. Stomach, stomach is where it all gets churned up and where it starts, and we have some enzymes and stuff in there. Um, small intestine, parts of the small intestine. Three parts. The duodenum is the first. What's the second? Uh-huh. The jejunum. Yeah, and then the third is the well, ileum. Is that how ileum. You like to yeah, yeah, ileum. And then it just differentiates it from the bone, the ileum. The ileum Fair is enough. the soft, squidgy bit. The ileum is the hard, bony bit. Okay. Surgeons will tell you off if you get that wrong. And then the large intestine. Going into the large intestine, um, you've got the cecum. The colon, which has loads of different parts, but we'll look at that later. And then you've got the, the ascending rectum. bit, the transverse bit, the descending bit, sigmoid yeah. bit, and then the rectum. Yeah. Yeah. And we'll see. Yeah. We'll get. We'll get to the rectum at the end, certainly. Oh. <laughs> uh Okay. Any other bits you want to comment on? I mean, there there are the the what do you call them? Like the the extra bits, the uh, the glandular appendages. The appendages. Yeah. You know, we've got other organs, other viscera attached to the GI tract, which have functions like the liver, the gallbladder, the pancreas. Pancreas. Yeah. yeah. Um, which um, again have major roles, which you should be well aware about from uh, your GI physiology. Not you, Ree, I mean the listeners. Thank you. Thanks. We don't we don't uh, do physiology. <laughs> we're anatomists. <laughs> yeah, Somebody else but, has to worry but, about how it works. <laughs> if we went into those now, this podcast would go on for like a really long time. Yeah, absolutely. But essentially, the liver is 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 taking the nutrients that have been absorbed and storing them and sharing them around and doing that sort of thing. Uh, the gallbladder is helping in digestion as is the pancreas, the exocrine part of the pancreas, and the endocrine part of the pancreas is, again, helping regulate the amount of uh, 
sugar in your blood. So the stuff you absorb, basically. Yeah, that's about what we yeah. want to say, isn't it? Okay. I think that's, that's enough an, on that, yeah. That's an introduction to what we're going to talk about. So number two, then, uh, is the anatomy of mesentery. What do we mean by mesentery, re? Mesentery, re? Oh, God, that's bad. Mes- what do we mean by mesentery? <laughs> okay, well, the mesentery, or mesentery, is basically a double layer of peritoneum. What do we mean by peritoneum, Sam? So uh, you can think of the peritoneum as like a a bin bag full of guts. <laughs> mm, mm. It's just it's just a bag, a like a, yeah, yeah, a bag full of guts. In fact, it's got two layers. It's got visceral peritoneum and parietal peritoneum. So it's more like having two bin bags which you put your guts in, and it's pretty much yeah. sealed either end. Uh, the the parietal peritoneum is continuous with the abdominal walls, and the visceral peritoneum. Is, is lining is continuing with the the viscera, so the the guts and the yeah the the actual GI tube and the organs we talked about like the liver and so on, right? Yeah. Um. So if you think about uh, the GI tube itself, we mentioned this when we talked about the embryology podcast, didn't we? When we talked about the embryology yeah, of the yeah. GI tube, you start off with a very simple tube, and it's held in place by the mesentery. So that peritoneum um, surrounds the uh, the tube and as the tube moves away from the wall into its space it pulls away that me- that peritoneum with it when that is the mesentery so it's kind yeah. of it's kind of dangling in space held in place by the mesentery and as it pushes out uh, the two layers of peritoneum on either side meet together so you've got tube mesentery okay Did you hear that right i that? no i didn't most of that i missed unfortunately anyway I was, saying that, I was just saying that the tube is surrounded by peritoneum and as the peritoneum is pulled away from the wall and the two sides of the peritoneum meet. I'm sure you could draw a little yeah. diagram of this. Then it becomes oh, a I'm sure I probably tree. could. Right. Um, one other thing we should talk about. Uh, what whole point other than sort of um, keeping everything in its place of the mesentery, you know, because that's one of the, I mean, it, it is mobile, but it does also sort of keep things in roughly the right place, doesn't it, inside yeah. the body cavity. But um, also, it's kind of like a conduit for some blood vessels, lymph and nerves. So, you know, bear that in mind. It's not just a, a, um, a structural function. It's also, um, you know, carries these blood vessels and lymph. Yeah, and... it gets very, very complicated as the tube gets longer, doesn't it? And yeah. it's absolutely filled with blood vessels, nerve fibres, often nerve fibres around blood vessels, lymphatics and all sorts, linking to that gut tube, but passing to the posterior abdominal wall pretty much through that mesentery and yeah. retroperitoneally. So behind, yeah. you know, deep to the peritoneum, right behind the peritoneum, outside the peritoneum. And nice word. While we're talking about, while you mentioned retroperitoneal, Probably uh-huh. worth us just going through um, what is retroperitoneal and what is intraperitoneal. Well, that was going to be number six. What's oh, inside the peritoneum? Should we come back to that then, oh, or should yeah, we do it sorry. now? We should have put these two together, really, shouldn't we? You know, if we'd been organised, I'd, I'd never accuse us of being overly organised. Yeah, you're right. I got confused. We'll come back to it. So how's that? That's uh, that's the mesentery done, yeah? Yeah. And we're talking about the gut tube. So uh, we talk about the histology that's of the absorption. Histology. Yeah. The, I mean, avoiding the physiology again. 
but looking at the the ultra structure so the microscopic structure of the the small intestine uh and linking that to the gross anatomy basically it's all about surface area isn't it yep we got this really long wiggly wiggly tube so there's lots of surface area there by having a longer tube and having it more wiggly <laughs> rather than having a short straight tube yeah, yeah yeah there's more surface area for nutrients to absorb across and yep. then the surface of say the small intestine is raised into finger-like projections of mucosa which are the villi yeah which gives much much more surface more area, surface area. So it's a really roughened surface. And then on top of the villi, the cells themselves have other little tiny, tiny finger-like projections, which are microvilli, further increasing the surface area. So it's all about surface area. Cleverly. Yeah. Um, mm. And then basically the rest of the... I mean, there are... In the mucosa there, there are glands, and there's a simple columnar epithelium, isn't it? With yeah. tight junctions in between to keep... The contents of, or the yeah the, the surface of the gut tube separate from the body, so these cells are very very tightly adherent together. So the absorption absorb absorbed nutrients must pass across the cell to the capillaries and what have you behind. Um, and then the other layers of the of the gut tube are basically muscular, so that the um, so that peristalsis squeezes whatever is inside the tube along to move it from top end to Back end, backside, bottom end, <laughs> push it along. And so, so you, yeah, you have muscles going in a longitudinal direction and in a circular direction, and that will help yeah. get along. Yeah, um, and then the cells are a little bit specialised. We have some glands and what have you in there producing uh, stuff to help with digestion. You know, stuff kind of needs to be dissolved. Your nutrients need to be broken down into their constituent parts and pretty much in solution to pass across the cells and into the blood. How's that? Is that, is that a good, a yeah. good uh, brief discussion of histology? <clears throat> I think so. So basically everything um, in the gut tube they want to do is to increase surface area because by increasing surface area, you increase the efficiency of absorption. Mm. That's the point. You've got wiggly tube down into... Um, villi intestinal villi and then also the actual individual cells have microvilli brilliant very you've got massive surface area and you've got a tight boundary between the inside of the body as in the proper inside and the external surface of the gut tube itself so it's about protection absorption and secretion of those bits to help digestion yep yep cool right let's get back to some solid anatomy number four blood, blood. what can you tell me about the blood supply to the uh, the gut, and this is something that everybody, all medical students, must know, and it's based in embryology, isn't it? The divisions of the gut can go from foregut, midgut, hindgut, and the main reason that they're divided like that is because each part is um, supplied by a different blood supply. Is that fair to say? Yeah, yeah. So the the foregut, I mean, it starts off as a simple tube, but the foregut. Uh, receives a branch from the aorta, which is the celiac trunk. The midgut receives a branch, which is called the superior mesenteric artery. And the hindgut receives a branch from the aorta, which is the inferior mesenteric artery. And then everything gets really complicated, and the whole gut expands and twists and stretches and so, so on until you've got all the structures we mentioned about earlier. But So how does that relate to the adult anatomy? We you mean like the stomach and the yeah, uh, small intestine? So, well, yeah, so the... What parts the inferior part of the 
esophagus, the stomach, the uh, part of the duodenum receives yeah, but only blood. the first part. Yeah, receives blood from the celiac trunk, and then from that part of the small intestine onwards. So part of the duodenum, the jejunum, the ileum, uh, the cecum, the ascending colon, and part way across the transverse colon. All those parts receive blood vessels from the superior mesenteric artery. Yeah. yeah. And then yeah. the rest of the gut tube down to the uh, the rectum or what have you, the anal canal, receives blood from branches from the inferior mesenteric artery. Yeah. And they're all directly from the water, like you said. Brilliant. And there are lots and lots and lots of branches, and that's the detail you have to find out. But that basic layout is very important. Yeah. Um, sorry, Rhi? Do we need to say any more? Um, about the arterial supply, I don't think so. I think that's stuff you have to look at yourself. Um, but the other really, 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 really important thing about the blood supply of the GI tract is where the blood goes after it's got to the the, the, the small intestine and the large intestine. Because um, all of the nutrients that are absorbed across the intestinal walls are absorbed into the bloodstream, which is then venous drainage, right? We've got veins then, because that blood's going back to the heart. But first of all, it goes back to the liver. Because the liver sees all of the blood, almost, almost all of the blood, that comes from the GI tract, right? Yeah. So we've got, uh, we've got corresponding veins. We've got an inferior mesenteric vein and a superior mesenteric vein draining blood from similar regions. And we've got a splenic vein, which runs across the pancreas, taking branches from the pancreas. Um, and when the splenic vein, inferior mesenteric vein, and superior mesenteric vein come together, or really it's when the inferior mesenteric vein and the splenic vein come together, they form a very short vein called the hepatic portal vein, which is really, really important. Um, so the hepatic portal vein then takes all that blood to the liver, and it receives some more blood from the gastric veins and what have you. How very comprehensive, thank you. Yeah. So the, the, that's, that's, it's a really important concept that the um, all the blood from the GI tract passes to the liver through the hepatic portal vein. Um, and something I normally teach is um, I give a I give a session on portosystemic anastomoses. Well, I don't think we're going to talk about them in, in this podcast. But there are venous anastomoses, links between the portal circulation, so the circulation passing to the liver, and the, the um, systemic circulation, so the blood passing back to the inferior vena cava. And uh, if you have liver disease, so if you have a cirrhotic liver, those portosystemic anastomoses come into play with significant symptoms, like um, vomiting blood. But that's for another podcast, or for you to look up yourselves, I think. Yeah, Wikipedia. No, I didn't say that. Well, I think is right with that one. I think I can't look at it for a while. <laughs> but basically, instead of blood passing through the liver, it has to find an alternate route. And if it finds a route through those anastomoses, then those smaller veins are taking much higher pressure of blood than they normally would, and they often burst or certainly distend. You get varicose veins and so on. Okay, so I think that's the blood covered pretty well. Uh, number five was autonomic innovation. Ho ho! I'll leave that to you, Re. Autonomic innovation of the GI tract. That sounds like a mare. 
Well, okay, we're going to go for the simple version because if you've listened to these podcasts before, you know that's what I like. Um, let me just take you back to autonomic innovation and you know that we're all talking about sympathetic innovation and parasympathetic innovation. Sympathetic, everyone chorus with me, fight or flight, all right? So any sympathetic innovation is going to... Um, yeah. Decrease the motility in the intestine and decrease any secretions that are going on, all sorts of different types of secretions, okay? And it'll also act as a vasoconstrictor, all right? So it shuts so, everything down in the GI tract so you can run away. But yeah, because you are... Where does shitting yourself come into this then? <laughs> That's number 10. Oh, right. yeah, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, well, fairly obviously, that's going to do the opposite. So it's going to increase any motility in the intestine. Sorry, I missed, we missed the beginning bit of that. This is the parasympathetic innovation, yeah? Yeah. Paras- did I, Sorry, yeah. go on. No, it just, it just, it just crackled up. Oh, okay. Okay, so it's going to do the opposite of the sympathetic. And quite often, the parasympathetic comes into play to restore digestion after there has been a sympathetic reaction to whatever. So, you know, away from the, the that's chasing you. Um you know, again, the parasympathetic innovation will restart the digestion and all that kind of thing, okay? So that's essentially what they do. Um, where do they come from, though? That's a bit more interesting. Now, like I said, remember, this is the simple version, okay? And I'm going to stay with the divisions of the gut that we had before, so foregut, midgut, and hindgut. So sympathetic innovation for the foregut comes from the greater nerve if you remember sorry really um, broke up there you say the greatest splanchnic yeah. nerve i said the greatest splanchnic nerve okay so i want you to just think to your just general sympathetic um innovation in anatomy and remember we've got the sympathetic trunk um but then further down so um in the lower half of that we've got splanchnic nerves okay um splanchnic just means part of um the viscera relating to the viscera all right that's just essentially what it means so the greater splanchnic nerve innovates the foregut supplies the sympathetic innovation for the foregut then we have the lesser and the least splanchnic nerves as well okay so the lesser and the least innovate the midgut and then only the least innovates the hindgut okay so that's sympathetic innovation which kind of makes sense really the uh-huh. greater is at the top least is at the bottom Sorry, that broke up. Parasympathetic innovation. I know you can all remember that the vagus carries a, the vast majority of parasympathetic innovation to a lot of the viscera, um, especially the gut. Okay, so, so gut and the midgut, it's primarily coming from the vagus. For the hind gut, we've got another splanchnic nerve, which is the pelvic splanchnic. Okay, um, that's that's essentially it. You've got what you've got to remember is all the nerves that come in end up um, getting mixed in plexuses. Okay, so we've got your superior mesenteric plexus. Um, that's an important one, and that's actually positioned. Oh, the superior mesenteric plexus that's around the superior yeah. mesenteric arteries. Branch. Oh yeah, you're. Oh yeah, you're right. The I'm thinking of the hypogastric. Yeah. It's really common throughout the human body is that wherever you find these little plexuses of autonomic nerve fibers, they tend to be wrapped around 
arteries and follow the arteries to the same place the arteries go in. Okay, so superior mesenteric plexus is coming from where the superior mesenteric artery is. So that's the mesh of nerves from there. Um, then coming further down, you've got hypogastric plexuses and you've got superior and inferior hypogastric plexuses as well. And they have this, all these nerves come together and mesh in them and then go off. Okay, so these plexuses, sorry. I said these plexuses, right. they're all... They're all where lots of different fibres, be they parasympathetic or sympathetic, all come together at one point and meet and then disappear off again to their target. Is that right? Yeah, quite often they come together from one source and then they will leave as a mixed nerve. So you know, we'll have they could run together. Sorry, that broke up again. Internet, who'd have it? It's bloody useless. I know, I know. Must be your end. Who's your provider? No, don't say. Um, <laughs> <coughs> okay, but I think we've got a good idea there. So we've got parasympathetic nerve. Most of the parasympathetic innovation is coming from the cranial nerve, from the vagus nerve, and running all the way down into the abdomen and supplying all that stuff down to the, uh, the midgut. Um, and then we have parasympathetic fibres coming up from the pelvis, from the sacral plexus, to, uh, to supply the rest of it. Coolio, that's not too bad. Um, that's, that's like I said, that's the simple version, but I think that'll do for now. No, I think that's a really good, concise explanation. Again, if you go back to the histology, you look under a microscope, you can again see these ganglia and plexuses uh, in the submucosa. What are they called? They're called out. No, not. Uh, Meissner's plexus. Yeah. Meissner's, or submucosal plexus, Meissner's plexus. Anyway, anyway, okay, we're doing well. That's. Uh, Autonomic innovation. So number six was what's inside the peritoneum. So we said the peritoneum was this bag, this big rubbish bag full of guts. What's inside the peritoneum and what's outside the peritoneum then? If the peritoneum is what? Well, the peritoneum is encasing stuff in the abdomen, so between the pelvis and the thorax. Tell me, Ree, have you got a list? What's inside the peritoneum? Okay. So inside the peritoneum is intraperitoneal, yeah? Okay. So inside we've got intraperitoneal, the stomach. Uh huh. The first five centimeters of the duodenum, to be specific. <laughs> At the rest of the small intestine, then comes down to the cecum, the appendix, so the large intestine, the transverse colon, the sigmoid colon, not the other parts. We'll talk about them in a minute. The upper third of the rectum, and then your liver and your spleen. So most of it, most of that stuff, liver, spleen, what have you, and the, yeah. the the tube itself, most of it's inside the peritoneum. But where it what gets really close to the posterior abdominal wall, some of it's outside the peritoneum. Yeah. So Nutty. so okay, the vast majority of the duodenum is retroperitoneal. Um, so is the ascending and descending colon. Um, the middle third of the rectum as well. Mentioned the the upper third of the rectum was intraperitoneal. The middle third is retroperitoneal, and the lower third is actually infraperitoneal. So. Okay. So it gives us an idea of how this inbound peritoneum attaches to the posterior abdominal wall itself. Then. Okay, sorry. You're crackling up there. I was just saying, so yeah. it gives you an idea, if you can visualise where all those bits are, how the peritoneum attaches to the, the posterior abdominal wall. Exactly. And, and you, you know, and one important thing, I, I always remember people talking about 
the retroperitoneum. Also, the pancreas is. Um, yeah, the, the pancreas is actually well. retroperitoneal, isn't it? Yeah. And the aorta and the major blood VK, vessels. inferior. Yeah, those things are, are outside the back, so you've got to remember those. Yeah, cool. And the other so, thing I think we need to talk about when we're talking about peritoneum are lesser sac and greater sac. People get very confused about what the lesser sac and the greater sac are. Can you Not heavy, them? heavy sac. What? Heavy, heavy. Missing that you reference. Don't. Heavy, heavy sac. Yeah. Huh? Um, <coughs> well, greater sac and lesser sac. Greater sac is pretty much everything you've said. Greater sac is that big space in, in the bag which you store your guts in. That's the greater sac. It's the big space. The lesser sac is the little space uh, kind of behind and between the liver and the stomach. The stomach, yeah. Yeah, there's a little space back there. There's the epiploic foramen, if you... Uh, Oh, nice word. Yeah, epiploic foramen is a good word. You can stick your fingers through there into the space that is the lesser, lesser sac, so it's behind the lesser omentum. The lesser omentum being the sheet of peritoneum connecting the liver and the stomach, if you can imagine that. Okay, so that's all the lesser sac and greater sac are. Greater sac is the most is the is the major space within the peritoneum. The lesser sac is that little space there behind and between the uh, liver and the stomach. Yeah. And I mentioned omentum as well, so let's say omentum. So the lesser omentum I said, the greater omentum is that, that big apron Sheep of peritoneum yeah, yeah, hanging down from the greater curvature of the stomach and coming back up to the uh, the other side, the, the, the transverse colon there, which covers the whole, uh, the whole anterior surface of the, of, of, the, uh, of the viscera of the abdomen there. So greater yeah. omentum and lesser omentum are different to greater sac and lesser sac. Greater stack and lesser stack being spaces, lesser momentum and greater momentum being sheets of peritoneum. Yeah? Yeah. Okay. Cool. Thank you for that. Number seven, points of herniation. Where can your guts spill out if you sneeze too hard? <laughs> or you try something a little bit too heavy. If you want, okay. sorry. Oh, you try to lift something a bit too heavy. Yeah. Sorry, you crashed. Um... I'm sorry. I you keep going like fast forwardy as well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway. Okay. Points of herniation. Well, I don't think these will be a surprise to anybody. You've got the um, inguinal canal that they can herniate through. Yep. You've got the femoral canal, a little bit lower that intestines can herniate through, and you've also got the hiatus hernia. Quite yeah, common. Those... Things that Those are the most with. common ones, aren't they? So it's wherever you've got a weakness in, in, in the muscles that are forming the abdominal walls or the top and bottom and so on. So yeah, so a hiatal hernia. Well, where, where's the weakness in the diaphragm? The most common weakness in the diaphragm for a hiatal hernia then? Did you hear any of that? Not really. No. This is difficult. Okay, we'll do that again. So, um, well, let's do it the other way around. So, an inguinal hernia then. Well, the, you mentioned the inguinal canal. So, basically, the herniation is through that inguinal canal, either within the spermatic cord direct or outside the spermatic cord or indirect hernia, yeah? Yeah. Where's and the... Yeah, go on. No, it's a, well, I was going to say that the inguinal canal is larger in men, so that's why men have more hernias. Is it? Not just because mm. we all go around lifting heavy things. 
Nope. Carrying the shopping and stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah, whatever. <laughs> um, 75% of abdominal hernia are inguinal. 75% of abdominal hernia are inguinal. 75% of abdominal hernias are inguinal, did you say? Yeah. Good start. Okay, what about femoral hernias then? What's that? What's that all about? That, that's, that is a okay. little bit tricky, that one, to be honest. Yeah, they're, they're actually quite hard to distinguish, apparently, the difference. Um, but they will happen... Unless you really know your anatomy, which is clear. The femoral canal is a bit lower than the inguinal canal, okay? And often they appear a bit more rounded... Yeah, I mean, the femoral hernia is usually kind of a lump on your thigh, whereas an inguinal mm. hernia isn't pubic region it's or in the scrotum. Up. Yeah, there's... Um, so it's where the vessels pass underneath the um, inguinal ligament, yeah, which would normally pass into the lower limb underneath the, you know, uh, underneath the fascia there, underneath the fascia. Yeah. Um, and there are canals for various structures, and one of those canals holds a little lymphatic vessel, so it's dead easy for a bit of uh, intestine to force through that femoral canal. And then on the other side there, there's actually a weakness in the in the fascia, in the stocking that covers the lower limb, because that's where the great saphenous vein pops into the femoral vein. And that weakness then, the hernia can show itself by popping through that bit of fascia. That's the femoral hernia. Cool. And did I, I wouldn't say it was that vaguely hernia, clear, but you probably didn't hear any of it, did you? Well, I, I did, but um, it's bitty, and then you really quickly because it had been paused. <laughs> it's like it holds all the information and then spills it all out at once. But, See um, how hard we're working for you, fellow listener? See how hard we're working? I didn't know that either. Oh, God. Anyway, <laughs> so where's the weakness with the hiatal hernia then? Um, hiatal hernias, or also called diaphragmatic hernias, okay? And that's where the stomach, where the esophagus meets the stomach, part of it's actually part of the heats up into the diaphragm. Part of the stomach slips up through the diaphragm. Yeah, I think so. And, yeah, cool. um, no, you just, you just went blip, blip, blip. So I was just checking oh, what you said. Yeah, yeah. And um, basically, there's two types of these. You can either have a sliding one, so they kind of the name you can either have one down or one that will stay there sorry lost all that can you say all that again please mm. i said you could have um you can have sliding ones or non-sliding hernias and so essentially clues in the name obviously that the um sliding one can always come back down but the non-sliding one will be stuck there herniated through uh, into your chest I see which is horrible really well, and I remember teaching this in embryology. You also can get congenital diaphragmatic hernias. Yes. And that's and that is like one in every two thousand or something, and that they need surgery. But it can because the intestines is herniated up into the chest. It can affect the development of your heart and your lung. So yeah, yeah, quite yeah, serious thing that. Yeah, yeah. He did yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. So number eight. Oh, this is another one of yours. How to spot small or large bowel. So you're in you're in surgery. The surgeon's got a bit of intestine in his hands. He says, "What's this?" <laughs> <laughs> As a medical student, how are you going to identify large or small bowel? Re? Okay. Well, essentially, the way I see it is there are three things that the large bowel has that the small bowel hasn't. Oh right? yeah. 
the first and most obvious of which is the um, I'm always going to pronounce this wrong. Tinie Coli, is that right? Yeah, Tinie Coli. Tinie, Tinie Coli. But then Whatever. my pronunciation is probably wrong as well. You know what anatomists are like. No, oh, we're terrible. Okay, so what is this? Okay, it's basically thickened bands of longitudinal muscle, and there are three of them. Right. Three thickened so, bands of longitudinal muscle, so they're running along the length of the large intestine. And they're very, very obvious. Ah. So that's the first thing that you look for. Uh huh. Um, but because these thickened bands of longitudinal muscle are shorter than the length of the actual um, large intestine, you get sort of little pouches, you know, sort of little pouches of intestine that come up because they're, you know, not stretched out the same, if you like. Okay, so they're running along the large intestine and they're kind of bunching it up a little bit because they're, they're yeah. muscle and they're, they're often tense. Okay. Yeah, and what are the pouches called, Sam? You've heard of these. Uh, house tree. Yeah, house, house tree. tree. So you get kind of so, this pouching thing. You don't see anything like that on the small intestine, do you? No, they're just, and it's essentially just pouches of colon that's caused by these because of this longitudinal muscle. So that's two things. And so Those are pretty good identifying features. What's the, what, there's a third one? <laughs> I know, I know. You can't believe it. There is. And these are, well, I know what I call them, a mental appendages. What do you call them? Yeah, a mental appendages. That's, that's the modern name. That's what you read in every textbook. I was, ta- I was taught epiploic appendices, which is one of which my favourite terms in the whole body. Epiploic appendices. Mm. But what, what are they? they? <laughs> what are they? They're little Basically, bits. they're just fatty bits, aren't they? Yeah, fatty, dangly bits. I mean, I think there are little kind of pouches of mesentery and everything, and there are little, there are all sorts in there, but they look like little fatty, dangly bits hanging off the large intestine. Orangey in colour, and yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's pretty clear if it's large intestine or small intestine. And once you've found the large intestine, you can work your way along it, can't you, to whatever problem area you're trying to find. Yeah. So answer to the question: What are the differences between small and large bowel? Those are the Teeny three. coli. Haustra, or house, or how? Haustree. Haustree, yeah. <laughs> H-A-U-S-T-R-A-E, I think, isn't it? Yes, that's how you spell it, yes. And the emental appendages, and that's easy. And then you've always always got to remember that, um, you know, the large bowel has got a larger diameter yeah, than yeah. the small bowel. But of course. Losing the name. In different people, it's going to look different. Okay, we're getting this. We've got two more to go. We've got nine and ten to go. Um, number nine, immunity. So immunity in the GI tract. Now that's going to be really important because you're putting all sorts of horrible things into your mouth. I think I probably said that wrong. But you're putting potentially all sorts <laughs> of um, uh, nasty organisms into your mouth, mouth, in the food and that sort of thing. And I've mentioned there's a barrier. You know, there's a, there's a barrier of epithelium between what's inside the GI tract and the rest of your body. But there's also, immunity plays a, a rather specialised role here, doesn't it, to stop nasty bacteria causing you big problems. Can you tell us yeah. a bit more about immunity? Well, because, um, you know, your gut is essentially part of the external environment, um, it's, it's evolved all sorts of different ways of um, stopping any nasties coming in and hurting you, basically. Um, you all know that your stomach is highly acidic, Okay, so with such a low pH, that's fatal to um, a lot of microorganisms that might get in there. So if they do get as far as your stomach, the uh, the low the low pH will um, get them. But my also dad's the... got a really acidic stomach, which I think I've inherited. Think... My dad never gets sick from he eats eats horrible stuff. Oh God, stuff that's yeah, you know, trifle has been in the fridge way too long. He's the only one that'll eat it. 
and uh, he He's never right. he never has any GI problems. And I've as I've got older, I seem to have developed the same knack. Eating, well, that's very uh, good. Just don't eat any rotten meat because I don't think it'll work. Yeah, well, no, I try not to push it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you've got your stomach. Okay, that's pretty good. Uh-huh. Um, but also. There's this mucus lining. We mentioned when we were talking about um, absorption and um, the epithelia and the specialised epithelia that are producing all sorts of stuff. Well, one of the things they produce is a mucus and that lines the um, the gut tube and that traps any other nasties that are coming down. You've also got your saliva and that has a lot of enzymes um, in it. That yeah, because you often read, don't you, that the, the mouth yeah. is the cleanest place or... Whatever. I don't think it's true, but no, math is. Yeah, pretty but that's based to that, based dirty. on that, anti, those antibacterial properties of your, of your saliva and all the IgGs and whatever is in there. Yeah, that's like when you get a cut, you lick it. You know, you kind of get your antibacterial in there. That's what they say. Yeah. Um, you've also got bile that's made that helps um, uh, get any other nasties. And um, one of the other things is we know uh, everyone knows that you've got bacteria in your. GI tract, you know you have good bacteria, bad bacteria. We see it how many adverts are on the TV for probiotics and yeah. you know healthy it's bacteria big, in your yogurt and all kind of thing. It's a big thing these days, um, isn't it? But you got to buy your bacteria now. Huge, yeah, living bacteria, you know all that kind of stuff. Um, and so by having healthy bacteria in your GI tract, you actually prevent um, the overgrowth of harmful bacteria. And you know harmful bacteria create toxins and all sorts of other things that. Gonna be bad for you. So, ah, so not only do the good bacteria help you digest stuff and absorb stuff, but they also keep the bad bacteria in check. Yeah. Ah. Quite good, really. Um, I mean, there are other things we haven't mentioned lymph um, and lymphoid tissue in the gut, and there is an awful lot of lymphoid tissue. Um, massive supplies of white blood cells. Actually, um, there's a few papers on it. I think one was a 2001 paper that was. Just talking about and investigating um, specifically in the ileum. Did I say that the right way rather than <laughs> Yes. Um, in the ileum, we've got a um, mass of lymphoid tissue that's called the Peyer's patch. I think they're pretty obvious when you see them um, in any kind of dissection or patient or what have you. And they're just packed full of lymphocytes and macrophages, as many white blood cells as you can get in there as possible, because they are ready... Um, to send out the troops if there is any immune response needed, they're there ah. ready. So, you know, it's, it's a site that quite often you may need um, white blood cells to come in and, and either attack or clear up any nasties that have been left around that have come in from your external environment. So it's quite clever, really. Got things at hand, ready to go. Oh, I see, I see, I see. So, like, uh, the army is uh, ready to be mobilised. That's how I like to think about it, yeah. <laughs> Could you, you can tell? tell we're not immunologists. <laughs> <laughs> Please don't let any of them listen to this. So immunity is is important in uh, the GI tract then, and there are some specialist structures and some specialist stuff going on there to, uh, to look after the pathogenic organisms that you might eat. That's a lovely way of putting it, yeah. Good bit of evolution again. Okay, right, we're on to number 10 now, are we? all about poo. Everybody's favourite, defecation. So how do we defecate? Um, I mean, one of the reasons I wanted to mention this was to point out that one of the... We were talking about the autonomic nervous system earlier, and most of it's motor, you know, motor to blood vessels, motor to the smooth muscle of the GI tract and what have you. And a little bit of it 
is sensory. But the only real sensory innovation passing from the GI tract to the brain is, um, is, is stretch receptors, right? Yeah. Um, I think the GI tract, you know, like the small bowel and the large bowel, don't, you can't sense pain, touch, heat, that sort yeah, of thing. You, yeah, that's right, that's right. The only thing you can sense is, is uh, stretch. And these stretch receptors obviously tell uh, the brain an awful lot about what's going on in the GI tract. But it also explains why um, if you've got a bit of wind, you can really feel it. Oh, you know, really need to have a good fart. Um, but often, if you get any pain, it's referred because the brain obviously doesn't understand what's going on. Anyway, um, how do we poo? Well, the rectum, the stretch receptors in the wall of the rectum then, when the rectum starts to fill with feces, uh, the stretch receptors respond to that. And there's like a coordinated reflex action whereby the sigmoid colon and what have you can start to empty into the rectum, further filling it up uh, into the into the uh, descending uh, into the anal canal. And then the external and internal anal sphincters, which normally have tone, so their normal state is to be on, you know, is to is to have tone and keep the sphincters closed. Um, when you're ready to go, that tone is lost. So the the, the tone to those sphincters and the puborectalis muscle is inhibited, and that's under voluntary and control. And relax. And the feces are evacuated, often with an increase in intra-abdominal pressure. Everybody uh, push. Yes. And, um, you know, kaploosh. Uh, Depth charge. Depth charge. <laughs> and then the, uh, the tone returns to those uh, sphincters, so it closes up again. Um, sometimes the mucosa is extruded out through the anus a little bit and that returns back to the anal canal uh, and so on and so on. Reminds me of an interesting story. (laughs) Do we want to hear this, everybody? Related to anatomy anatomy exam, actually, back in the days when I was doing my anatomy degree. Do you want to hear this? Yeah, Yeah, go on. Well, back in anatomy, I remember learning about the gastrocolic reflex. And, of course, I've been doing lots of revision and... um, for an exam that was coming up. Now, the gastrocolic reflex is where when food enters the stomach and you start to digest and what have you, it kicks off a reflex so that the, the colon starts to empty stuff into your rectum, ready for defecation. So often, um, we say the first meal of the day, that prompts many people to have the first defecation of the day, or for most people, their only defecation of the day. People poo in different ways. It's entirely normal. Um, <laughs> okay, and that's the gastrocolic reflex. I remember reading about this. And on the day of the exam, of course, on an exam day, it's good to get some, keep your blood sugar levels up, right? And I wasn't at the time somebody who really ate breakfast. Well, I made sure I ate breakfast and had coffee and and got the sugar in my coffee, brain. Coffee, oh yeah. dear. Yeah, so that I was ready to go for the day. Yeah, caffeine has, well, caffeine has something else as well. Um, and just as I was about to go into the exam, I was I was reminded of the gastrocolic reflex as it all started to kick off, <laughs> which was great. The start of a two-hour exam paper. <laughs> so there you go. So <laughs> oh, case, oh, that's good. I have revised because I know why this is occurring. Oh no, I've got an exam to sit in. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> but luckily, as we said, the internal and external anal sphincters are under voluntary control. Okay, so that's how to defecate. Is there anything no, else you want to add to that? Really? Yeah. Did Elvis die from? Did Elvis die from what? Let me say that again. Did Elvis die because he was having a poo? I don't know. I'm not much of an Did Elvis he, fan. Was he just sat on the toilet, not necessarily having a poo? I, I really don't know. 
<laughs> and how many people hold their breath like just before they're going to go? I mean, if you're holding your breath, you're not just increasing your intra-abdominal pressure, but you're increasing your intra-thoracic pressure. If you do that, <laughs> you're raising the blood pressure inside the thorax, which can give people with heart disease or, you know, people who are susceptible to further injury um, some sort of uh, a major blood vessel or heart failure, which is why people sometimes do die exerting themselves on the toilet. Yeah, King George II. Really? Yeah. Eat your fibre, people. Eat your fibre. You shouldn't have to strain that much. <laughs> God's sake. I mean, it's only about eight grams. Is it eight grams of fibre a day? Mind you, that sounds like a lot if you were to weigh the grass and chew it. Six or eight grams of fibre a day. But eat your fibre, people. Don't die yeah. pooing on the bog. Anyway, <laughs> we'll look up Elvis. It's all about poo, everybody poos. Good. Okay, we'll so look up Elvis and we'll stick a link into the enhanced podcast, shall we? <laughs> okay, thanks, Ray. I, I, I mean, I think that's a list of stuff that we think is real fundamental stuff with regards to the GI tract. There is much, much more you need to know as a medical student or somebody who's involved in the health sciences of this region. And that's stuff you can look at yourself. Um but hopefully this style will be useful to you. And I think we plan to do many more like this, don't we? Yeah, we think, I think it um, makes it a bit more interesting than just reading an anatomy book. Yeah, but um, it's also much more interesting than us just reciting anatomy books. Anatomy is a very visual, spatial subject. You need to get to grips with it. But I know, especially you auditory learners out here, out there, that these are helpful to you. So... If we, if we cut it down to the core stuff, the stuff that you've really got to know, and stuff that maybe people find difficulty with and we discuss it, then hopefully that's, that's helping you a bit. But we'll, we'll do more 10 Things You Should Know podcast. Like I say, the next one I reckon we should do should be 10 Things You Should Know About the Pelvis because you probably know a lot about the pelvis right now, Ree. I'm told you I'm trying not to think about it. And it's, it is, you know, it's, it's right next to the abdomen, so... Yeah, yeah, 10 things you should know about the pelvis, I think. We'll be okay, there. okay, I promise I'll get onto it. <laughs> okay, well, hope you stay healthy, Ree, and everything works well. Thank you, Dr. Webster, same to you. Yeah, well, take it easy, and thank you very much for recording this podcast with me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Say goodbye to everybody. Bye, everybody. Bye, everybody. Bye, everybody.